Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Would you turn to Acts chapter 11, please? My name's Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary Chapel, South London. And if you're joining us for the first time, I try to every week just remind us that we're in a series going through the book of Acts. And we're in a mini-series within our major series. And we're looking at the bigger picture. And this is the third in this mini-series. It's the last one in this small series. The bigger picture... Part three, and today's message is the kind of stuff that splits churches. The kind of stuff that splits churches. And we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 11, starting at verse 1, all the way through to verse 18, which I'm going to read. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent, in which we were sent from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me. And we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance 
that leads to life. Evidently, that was an abbreviation of all that took place in the previous chapter, which is what we looked at last week. Now, before we get into the text, just as a reminder, we've been talking about, as we've been looking at this mini-series called The Bigger Picture, we've been reminding ourselves of the theme that runs throughout this whole book. And again, today, you can, you can draw a lot from this message, hopefully. But if you were exposed to last week's and the week before that, then you would get the actual deeper meaning. But then also, if you appreciate the greater and wider context of the book of Acts, oh my goodness, then you will really get to appreciate not just the big picture or the bigger picture, but then you will get the biggest picture context. So, just as a reminder, this is the outline for the whole book of Acts. I don't know if you can see that from where you're sitting. The theme is the spread of the gospel from one place to another, from Jerusalem to Rome. In Acts chapter 1 through to Acts chapter 7, we looked at the birth of the church in Jerusalem. And chapter 6, verse 7 says, And the word kept on spreading, and numbers increased. Then we looked at chapter 8 through 9, which was the expansion of the church that had now been born into Samaria and beyond. And chapter 9, verse 31 says, The church had peace and was strengthened. Chapter 10 through 12 which is where we are at present, the opening of the gospel to the Gentiles. Groundbreaking. Chapter 13 through to 28, which is the rest of the the portion of the book of Acts, we see the gospel spreads not just from Jerusalem to Samaria, then to the Gentiles, but even further afield than where we're at now, which is Caesarea, actually coming back to Jerusalem. We see the gospel spreads throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day what? It's not actually Asia, it's actually Turkey. That's known as Asia Minor, and then spreading further to Europe. And we're going to see Paul's first, second, and third missionary journeys, and we're we're going to attempt to have a look at all of those as we go through chapter 13 through 28, and it says in chapter 16, verse 5, that the churches continue to be strengthened and increased. Can you see the theme running through the book? And you know, these themes run through every single book of the Bible. Not this specific theme, but a theme you'll find in every book in the Bible. And it's important to look for the themes in order to get the the bigger picture. And all of this we see is in fulfillment of what the Lord Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 when he said, And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Sometimes in a book you find the keys at the front door, as it were. In Acts 
we find the keys right in chapter 1, right in verse 8. The keys that unlock the whole book in terms of the theme. Can you see that? Not every book has that in kind of explicitly. Sometimes it's implicit, so you have to dig deep and look hard. So, we've done chapter 1 through 7. We've done chapter 8 through 9. And, as I said, we're now in chapter 11. From this point on, Acts will concentrate on the conversion of mainly Gentiles of one sort or another. That's why I've highlighted this section of Acts and called it the bigger picture. Because it marks major change in the book and major change in the church at this point. Today, we're going to conclude the story of Peter and Cornelius Although this is the end of this story, it actually opens up a whole new chapter. Although the issues surrounding this Jewish-Gentile relationship seem to be resolved, we really won't see a conclusion to the matter for another five chapters when we get to Acts chapter 15. And even years after that, there are conflicting perspectives. Five 10, 15 years after, 50, 100, 500 years after, 1,000 years, even 2,000 years later, we are still confronted with issues related to non-Jews and the keeping of the law, aren't we? One of those groups who follow a similar line of thinking with regard to concerns about keeping the law, we have with us today. And that is the Seventh-day Adventists. And I'm going to mention that particular group specifically today because I had so many conversations last week with individuals who were concerned about family members who are a part of this organization. Seventh-day Adventists who, although claiming to be Christians, do not submit or subscribe to Christian doctrine as outlined by the apostles. In Acts chapter 2 verse 42, it says, and they, that is the new Christians, as a part of the newly formed church, it says they devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine. That which the apostles taught. And fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Can I suggest that if you're considering becoming a member here at South London, you need to bear in mind that we are going to encourage you strongly to submit, not to our doctrine, not to what Pastor Patrick, what Pastor everyone, Pastor Robert think, but we're going to encourage you to submit to the Apostles' Doctrine. Bear that in mind as you consider becoming a member here. Because it's going to make all the difference. Now, 
You may have family members who are a part of this church. They don't submit to the apostles' doctrine. If they did, they wouldn't teach that. One, the atonement. Let's go back. The atonement, they say, is not complete. And that Jesus works in the heavenly tabernacle in the process of completing the atonement of all believers. That's not biblical. Two, they teach that believers, check it, believers enter into a judgment of works which determines their salvation. And it's called the investigative judgment. Three. They teach that works plus grace equals salvation. Now that's not an equation that you'd see one of the apostles put up on the blackboard. Particularly, this is enforced with regard to the keeping of the Sabbath. Fourth, they teach that Satan bears our sins. Fifth, they teach that, again, check it, Christians will stand before God without Christ's intercession. That is a part of their teaching. Also, sixthly, they teach that the Sabbath is the seal of God and those worshipping on Sunday will receive the mark of the beast. Seventh, they teach soul sleep. That is, if you die as a believer, you have no cognition of anything whatsoever until the day of judgment when God wakes you up. Now that completely flies in the face of so many things that are mentioned throughout the New Testament. Paul says to be absent from the body is to what? Is to be present with the Lord. And finally, eighth, and there's a whole heap more, but look, obviously, look, I run out of space, right? Eighth, they teach annihilationalism. You ever heard about that? Annihilationalism, and it's a denial of the biblical doctrine of hell, which suggests that if you ain't saved, when you die, you will be annihilated, or you will just cease to exist. There ain't no judgment, partial or eternal, for you if you don't believe in, in Christ. It's like, hey, I mean, if I was a sinner and I heard that, I'd be like, yo, I'll just go eat, drink, and be merry. Because tomorrow I'm going to die and it's all going to be over. It's, it's, this, is not, this is not the apostles' doctrine. If you're interested, I'd encourage you strongly to go to this website. It's called xadventist.com. www xadventist.com e-x-a-d-v-n-t-i-s-t.com which is a ministry of Calvary Community Church it's actually a Calvary Chapel in Phoenix, Arizona 
And most of the articles are by Pastor J. Mark Martin, who is a former Seventh-day Adventist minister. There is a plethora of videos, articles, and I think I must have downloaded about 30 MP3 messages that deal with every single issue that relates to that which the Seventh-day Adventists teach that you will find really helpful if you're interested in this topic. It's an extensive and comprehensive response to this false teaching, information that I recommend. Now, I mention, as I said, this particular religious group because they are so closely related to the group we find in our text today. Apart from the fact that these Christians in our text submit to the apostles' doctrine, whereas hardcore Seventh-day Adventists won't, it is incumbent upon us as followers of Christ to follow his direct teaching in the Gospels as explained in the epistles by the apostles. Should I repeat that? It is incumbent upon us as followers of Christ to follow his direct teaching in the Gospels as explained in the epistles by the apostles. The epistles, you heard me say it before, the epistles are not the wives of the apostles. The epistles are a commentary on the Gospels, giving further insight and clarification. Now, it's been nearly 15 centuries 1,500 years up to this point in the text, not till now. 1,500 years since Moses has given the law. And the Old Testament has been ingrained and completely absorbed into Jewish culture. It actually is the Jewish culture. Jews and the law of Moses at this point are inseparable. A bit like Pinky and Perky, like Morecambe and Wise, like water and wet, inseparable. Yet, yet that was the old, and here comes the new. The Old Testament replaced with the New Testament, the Old Covenant replaced with the new covenant, the old agreement replaced with the new agreement. And if trusting in this new savior wasn't hard enough, here come further modifications. And although it's, it's all a bit too much, the circumcised Christians in this chapter seem content by verse 18. But other Jewish Christians, and you have to remember they're Christians, but other Jewish Christians are not going to stand by and see thousands of years of Jewish observance ignored. It was one thing allowing mixed race, half Jewish Samaritans into the church, at least they were circumcised and for the most part observant of and in keeping with Jewish tradition. That was one thing. 
It was one thing allowing the Ethiopian in, in chapter 8. Fair enough. He was a proselyte who had previously become a Jew and had been circumcised and had kept the dietary law and festival laws. That was acceptable. But it was another thing to now allow uncircumcised, non-Jewish, pork and all other unclean animal eating, law-ignoring, ritualistically unclean, idol-worshipping pagans entrance into God's kingdom. Now, this was the last straw. First it was the Samaritans, then it was the proselytes, now the dogs. I don't think so. Peter could easily have responded to them by saying, what? Does this make you choke? Well, you have no idea. Peter could have said, particularly knowing what he experienced last week. And today, as well as then, the question we ask is, what place does the law have? Well, what did our master say? He says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he did. Therefore, if I'm in Christ, I have kept the law. Because Jesus kept the law. Or, Christ Jesus has kept the law on my behalf. If I put my trust in him. It's all about righteousness or right standing with God. I can go about trying to obtain my own righteousness. Or I can trust in the righteousness provided by Christ. See the problem is I can't do both. Now I have a choice to trust in my own ability to obtain righteousness. Or I can trust in that which has been provided for me by Christ. Except your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus said. You'd be like, wow, how on earth could I be as righteous as them? I mean, they kept the law externally. And we can talk about it another week, but Jesus takes the law to another degree. It's one thing saying, you must not commit adultery. And the scribes and the Pharisees could easily say, we've never done that. Ah, but Jesus says, have you ever looked at a woman and lusted after her in your heart? That's next level. They can say, outwardly we've kept the law. But that don't make you righteous because it's good that you keep the law externally, but are you keeping it internally? And if you haven't, uh -uh. You've, you've now broken the law. And you stand guilty. And there ain't nothing you can do to erase your guilt. All the good, you could be good for the next 100 millennia. You'd be like, wait... It's fantastic, that's heavy. But, but 
What about back then? What back then in 2 BC when you did this? And tell me about 2,000 years of being good. That's just like someone coming before the judge for rape, right? And the judge saying, I've got no option. You've broken the law, right? A year ago, you were found guilty of committing this illicit sexual act. What can I do? And you turn around and say, oh, judge, you know what? From the time that happened, I've been good. I haven't, I haven't lied. I haven't stolen anything. I don't follow my brethren. I stop blazing. Swear down, I've been good. What's the judge going to say? Oh, okay. Maybe I need to take that into consideration. Somehow I don't think so. So then, if a normal, natural judge, on the basis of the law of the land, wouldn't be expected to do so, how on earth would you expect God to do so? If, if life was a tightrope that led to heaven, you fell off it when you were seven years old or so. And there's no safety net. That's it. You fell off. Ah, and there ain't no safety net. No more chances. You know, it feels like when you... When you when you're trying your utmost to do something and everything in you wants to do and, and then you slip or you fall. You ever seen that crazy Chinese game show? When then people have to do some crazy, monstrous madness and they, everything in them want to, want to compete this challenge. But you know what? <laughs> the thing's slippery and muddy and but of bam, you slip, that's it. In the water, that's it. Next contestant, please. The brother there with the long stick, he don't care. Next contestant, right? You slipped and you fell, that's it. No more chances. And if given opportunity, okay, all right, let's give you another chance. <laughs> Me included. Let's give you another chance. You will fall and slip another million times. Hey. You don't get to start over again at age 27. See, how are you, <laughs> based on those statistics, anyone disagree with that? Based on those statistics, how are you going to make it across the universal Grand Canyon on this tightrope? The quicker you realize you can't, the better. See, that's how foolish and futile it is to even think that you could establish your own righteousness. Jesus said, except your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 5 verse 20. The point being, no one can keep the law. Yet we have Jewish believers in Christ trying to obtain what they already have in Christ by hopelessly trying to keep the law. Law and grace 
are mutually exclusive. Romans chapter 3, two fantastic verses. Listen to this. Romans chapter 3, verse 28. For we hold, that is those who submit to the apostles' doctrine, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Ain't it big, bruv? Oh my gosh. Look, look, here's the next one. Galatians 2, verse 16. Yet we know who's the, who's the we. See, these are the apostles. This is, this is an epistle. This is the apostles talking. It, it would do us well to listen and follow their instruction. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Did you hear that? But through faith in Jesus Christ. You see the difference? You can't have both. It's one or the other. They're mutually exclusive. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Why? Because... By the works of the law, no one will be justified. Is, 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 is that unclear? Good, then I don't have to repeat it. Now, let me have a drink. The Jerusalem church, or the main headquarters, is now being challenged to its very core. We see from verse 1 that the Jerusalem Jewish Christians had already had a heads up. They had received word of the momentous events in Caesarea. Long before Peter's return, they know what's going on, they've caught wind of it. Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers, that is the leaders as well as the church body. You see that? And who is possibly, potentially, probably among this group of leaders? Probably included at least some, if not all, of the other 11 disciples. Remember, Peter's off doing his own thing. Hey, but I mean, remember, Peter was a part of a, of a larger group. And remember, this is Jerusalem. This is where everything started popping in the first place. Remember, 3,000 getting saved. And then later on, another, what, 5,000. Potentially, a church of 10,000 Christians in Jerusalem being led by the apostles so they're here and not just them in Jerusalem but look the brothers who were throughout Judea now Judea is a healthy sized province that means that word has spread like wildfire you know that them kind of, this, you know that them kind of news it don't take long before it gets out and they'd heard heard that the Gentiles also 
had received the word of God. They knew that Jews, they were Jews. They knew that Samaritans, they knew that proselytes had heard. But Gentiles as well? Verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, they're waiting for him. Apparently, after some time had elapsed, it says the circumcision party criticized him. <laughs> Remember, this is the stuff that splits churches. The circumcision party, they criticized him saying, one, you went to uncircumcised men. Two, you ate with them. Now you've got to give them credit because at least they're not round the corner talking about Peter. And Peter's over there, right? No, they step straight to Peter. Just like it says in Matthew 18, if you have all against your brother, go to who? Your sister? Your brethren? No. Well, and chat and susu? No. It says go to the person. And this is what they do, right? Evidently disturbed by Peter's seemingly irrational behavior, they disputed or they reproved him. They charged him with being at fault. Now, how many of you know Peter needs to come good? The temptation for him could be to ask, wait a minute. How dare you question my authority? Do you have any idea who I am? Could that have been a possible temptation for Peter? Peter better come good. Peter is under no illusions as to whether he is the Pope or not. Of course he isn't. Otherwise he'd be like... You're like some, some houses would have been fabulous that day. If Peter was the Pope. And hey, just check. Just, just check history. Check the annals of history with regard to the Roman Catholic Church. And what the Popes did in view of anyone that, what? Challenging the authority of the Pope or the Holy, the, the Holy Mother, the Church. You better, you, you better get down on your knees and kiss my ring. <laughs> or I will have you hung, drawn, and quartered. Are you, are you nuts? But thank the Lord, Peter doesn't have these illusions of grandeur. Of course he's not the Pope. But you see, that doesn't make a blind bit of difference to the Catholic Church. Even if Peter was to tell them himself in one of the apparitions that they have. Even if he appeared to them himself, they wouldn't believe him. Now, Peter isn't puffed up with pride. He recognizes the need to be challenged by others. Check it. Peter's a leader. There ain't no dispute in that. But Peter doesn't get away from being challenged. 
Now, you know I could go down a rabbit trail with that one, right? Peter's not puffed up with pride. And unlike many leaders called on the carpet, Peter has sufficient an answer. He's humble. And he responds, as we said, and he needs to. And these disciples of Christ, they have a responsibility. And their responsibility is to listen. Whether Peter's right or he's wrong. Whether you're right or you're wrong. When you step to someone, you need to be careful to listen. Yesterday, I went upstairs. Helen called me upstairs to help her to move something. And I was in the middle of studying. So I kind of, I'm, I'm halfway up the stairs, but my mind is still at the desk in front of the laptop. So I'm halfway up the stairs, and I'm like, oh. And I get to the top of the stairs, and Helen, my wife, has turned my daughter's room upside down, clearing it up. So I walk upstairs, and this is what I'm confronted with. And I look to my right, which is, if you've been to my house, you know, the right-hand side is where the bathroom is. So Renee's room's there, the bathroom's there, the room's upside down, Helen's in the room. Where's Renee? She's in the, in the bathroom, putting on makeup. <laughs> and I was like, I never asked no questions, because it seemed quite apparent to me what was going on. How comes you are in there putting on makeup and your mum is in there clearing up that room? You better find yourself in that. I don't, but I'm going to dance. I don't care where you're going. You better find yourself in there and go, on, what's going on here? You know, in Proverbs, it talks about the fool who opens his mouth before he hears a matter. And, um, What had basically happened is Helen had determined on the spur of the moment to move a desk out of the room because she had another purpose for it. And she hadn't even communicated with Renee that that's what she was doing. And Renee not only was going somewhere, she was already late for where she was going. So there's me. Fire coming out my nostrils. <laughs> And um, cut a really long story short, I had to apologize. <laughs> and I did. It was hard, but I did. And I think she forgives me. <laughs> but um, you see how important it is to listen. It's important to listen. So these who had confronted Peter now were challenged just as much as Peter was challenged. If either of them was to open up and allow the flesh to get the better of them, this could have been horrible. We're talking about the kind of stuff that splits churches. Because leaders won't take example from Peter. And those who are confronting leaders or those who are not leaders won't humble themselves to the point where they're prepared to listen. And it cuts both ways, a lie. This could potentially split this very young church. 
Peter and his boys, who used to be so close and so tight, could be in war with one another now. Peter needs to give a a good answer. He needs to give a logical defense. And these disciples of Christ need to be real Bereans. Verse 4. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. In other words, precisely as it happened, and I want you to note five hammer blows that nailed it with regard to Peter's account of the things that took place. Notice the first thing, divine vision. Divine vision. Verse 5, I was in the city of Joppa praying, seemingly minding my own business, as it were. And in a trance, I saw a vision. And not just any kind of random vision, but one that was pertinent to the apparent circumstances. Always be wary when someone says that they've had a vision. Most cults base their doctrine on visions. Like Ellen G. White, the most influential leader of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. There she is. Check it. From the time she was 17 years old until she died 70 years later, God gave her, quote-unquote, approximately 2,000 visions and dreams. Now that's taken from the official Ellen G. White website. Visions. Mrs. White's visions gave positive testimony against tobacco, alcoholic spirits, snuff, tea, coffee, check the next one, flesh meats, butter, spices, rich cakes, and mince pies. Boy, you better just, you better just wipe Christmas <laughs> off the calendar, right? <laughs> ah. Check it. I want you to note flesh meat. Is it up? Besides the discouragement of meat and milk products and eggs, Mrs. White's visions also discouraged, guess what? Marriage. Watch. Now, this is subtle. Watch. In this quote, in this age of the world, she stated, as the scenes of Earth's history are soon to close, which they didn't, we're talking about a hundred years ago, which they didn't, just like Jehovah's Witness doctrine, which has not come to pass. As in this age of the world, she stated, as the scenes of Earth's history are soon to close and we are about to enter upon the time of trouble such as never was, the fewer marriages contracted, the better for all, both men and women. Now you see what I mean when I tell you you've got to be careful. Now, that's what she says. But what do the apostle, excuse me, Hmm, I hear you, Miss what, Mrs. White. Int interesting. 
I hate stick a pin. Now that I've heard what you have got to say, Paul, you're an apostle. One, yes, born out of due season, but one who has seen the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, can you please tell me what you have to say about this matter? First Timothy chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Now, that the Spirit expressly says that when? In the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. You see where this stuff's coming from? To deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. King James, I like it. Doctrines of demons. Verse 2. Through, check it. Through what? This is what they are. I'm sorry. I have to, what can I do? I have to go with the apostle. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Do you know how important a conscience is? It's one of those things in Romans 1, 2, and 3 that God gives without his word that helps to direct you. You may not have God's word on every single issue. You may not even read the Bible. But you got a conscience. And God will speak to you through your conscience. Unless it's seared. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and check it and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. We heard that last week. Everything that is created by God is good. And nothing is, look, not some things. Or most things. Nothing. You may not like Marmite. How many of you, there's a whole host of foods that I don't like. But woe be unto me, like my mom used to say, woe be unto me if I ever tell you you can't eat it. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Just be encouraged that if you're going to eat anything, just bless it, yeah? <laughs> All right. Apostle, Paul, do you have anything else to say? Yeah, I've got a whole lot to say. Colossians 2 verse, verse 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you. Who are you going to take your cue from? Let no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism. That's what the ESV says. The, the, King James, sorry, the New King James says false humility. It's a, it's a look like they're very holy. And they go church. All five times a week. But don't watch that. Don't watch that. you got some that live in a church, like monks and nuns in monasteries. They don't even... 
They don't even leave the church, let alone attend it five days a week. They don't leave it. You've got to be careful of these outward signs of false humility. And worship of angels. If you ever hear how many references there are to this visitation of angels in Seventh-day Adventist teaching. It's unbelievable. Angelic, constant angelic visitations. Particularly with regard to Ellen G. White. Going on in detail about visions. And how do they come about? Puffed up without reason by their sensuous minds. And you say, and look, look at the problem. We prayed it at the beginning. The Lord's so good. He knows, isn't it? We prayed it at the beginning. We're the body. Christ is the head. Now, the body over there and the head over here don't make no sense. We have to stay closely connected to the head. Who is who? Who is Jesus Christ? He's the head. See? This is how you get in trouble when you stop holding fast to the head. Verse 19, Colossians chapter 2. Now remember, remember, Peter was an apostle. A capital A apostle. Now, I mention that because that type of an apostle we don't have today. Capital A apostle. We have small a apostle. Because the word apostle means what? It means sent one or one who is sent. Now the way that, that Peter and the apostles who were with Christ were sent is not the way that you and me get sent. We do get sent but we don't turn up on the basis of having sat with Jesus, known Jesus personally. We don't have that kind of qualification. We ain't got them kind of stripes. Remember, Peter was like A type, A class, like top of the range apostle. Personally appointed by the Lord Jesus, one who saw the Lord after his resurrection. And only a chapter ago, remember, I mentioned it, remember, only a chapter ago we saw the Lord authenticate the ministry of Peter by healing Aeneas, who was a paraplegic, and by raising Tabitha from the dead. Don't be, don't be trying to compare yourself. I, I'm not going to any meeting where the, where the chief speaker is the apostle, blah, blah, ray, ray, whatnot. I'm not going. You can go if you want to. I'm not trying to say you mustn't go. I'm saying I'm not going. Because they don't mean apostle small a. They be like, you, ex you go to those meetings expecting lightning to fall from heaven and people to jump up healed from debilitating diseases and I know because I, I spent six years in a church like that I don't need nobody to tell me nothing now I'm not judging them 
I'm just saying, you, you know what? If I have to choose between the two, I'm going to go with the apostles. Capital A. Don't be fooled by the fraudsters. Peter goes on in his vision, as I need to, otherwise we'll never get out of here today. Peter goes on in his vision to describe, verse 5, something like a great sheep descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came to me. It came down to where I was, says Peter. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles. He adds that. It wasn't in the last one. Sorry, birds of prey. Beasts of prey, he adds, wasn't in the last list that he made in chapter 10. Reptiles and birds of the air. Verse 7, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. I can hurtle through that because we covered it extensively last week. He's repeating what took place. So, a genuine, divine vision. The second hammer blow that was struck by Peter in his communication was divine confirmation. Look at verse 11. And behold, at that very moment, I couldn't have contrived this. At that very moment, you know, it's me, James, John, it's me, it's Peter. You know I'm not going to lie to you, fam. At that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, and they were sent from Caesarea. Okay, so Peter had had a vision. That was now somehow related to these Gentile visitors. Can you see how the Lord is now bolstering and reinforcing his vision, his real, genuine vision? At that very moment. Here came three unclean men. Coincidence, I'd like to think so. But if I listen in my heart, I hear the winds blow over. <laughs> Is Jazu here? I don't even know. Coincidence? No. See, this vision is it's not unattached, it's not irrational. It's not disconnected. It's not an, appar an apparition. It's rooted in reality. Divine confirmation. The third hammer blow was a divine command. Notice who is speaking to Peter. The Lord God himself, who is the spirit. And he says, even against your natural inclination, Peter, go with these men. Verse 12, you see the divine command? And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. In that, I hear no room for debate, do you? Neither do Peter's hearers who are listening carefully, as Peter answers substantially. First a vision, second a command, and three, these unclean people turn up. Something's going on. And whilst Peter has no idea as to the full implications of this, he also had nothing to do with the organizing of these events. It was all divinely prepared. Even down to his traveling companions, remember from last week? Those who accompanied Peter from Joppa. 
Last week it didn't say in the text, but I told you there were six of them. Why? Because I read ahead. It's right here in chapter 11. These six Jewish, check it, Jewish brothers also accompanied me. And we entered the man's house. So what's, what's Peter doing now? Peter's saying, all right, look, I'm, you know who I am. Boom. You know my history. You know my credentials. This is how it went. But look, just in case you don't believe me, ask them. Man's like, yeah, 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 man, I was dead, boy, I saw it all. <laughs> Check it. Ooh. William Barclay says, the six men, including Peter, significantly made seven. For in Egyptian law, which the Jews would know well, seven witnesses were necessary completely to prove a case. While in Roman law, which they would also know well, seven seals were necessary to authenticate an important document like a will. The Jews would have been happy with two or three witnesses, loosely based on 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. Let every charge, okay, cool, we need two or three witnesses. They would have been happy. The Lord's like, hey, I'm going to double that. What? Who, who, who's going to argue? See, that was the fourth one. Divine preparation. It's got the Lord's fingerprints all over it. And when this group of seven Jewish men arrive, they're greeted by Cornelius. Look how the Lord continues to divinely prepare with quartz accurate type precision verse 13 and he cornelius told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house i mean the lord's confirming this everywhere remember i said last week both ends right synchronization and he cornelius told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house an angel and say send to joppa Peter's like, how would he know that that was where I was staying? And bring Simon, who is called Peter. He knew my name. And even the name of the man who I was staying with. Even down to his occupation and where he lived. We saw that last week. Verse 14. He will declare to you a message. This is the angel speaking to Cornelius. A message by which you will be saved. I love it when I come across that term in the scriptures. Because you know, often we ask people, are you saved? Boy, I'm not sure if he's saved or not. Are you saved? Boy, Lord, am I saved? You know what I'm saying? Are you saved? It's biblical. And he's going to declare a message to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Just like in Acts 16 with the Philippian jailer. Not because... The Philippian jailer or Cornelius got saved, their house got saved. It's because the men had great influence in their home. And that's one of the things we felt the Lord speaks to us when we went to Jamaica. It was like, oh, Lord. We just felt like the Lord was saying, the man them. It's one thing, the little children doing children's ministry and, and encouraging them and their tender hearts toward me. Amen. That's a good thing. But guess what? You ain't going to see the influence of that for another generation. It's one thing influencing the women. You know this is true. 
It's one thing influencing the women in the home. And women work hard and they're faithful and they're committed, holding it down. Where the men, them are jokers. I'm a lying. Man, them are jokers. Man, them are waste man <laughs> in our society. And the women are holding it down. And they will affect the children. And that's wonderful. But anyhow you get a hold of the man them. Anyhow you get a hold of the head of the home. If he's at the home, you get a hold of him. The Lord will bring him back to the home and begin to establish some kind of order. That's why we bang on here about male leadership. It's so vital. It's important. It's God's pattern. Cornelius and his whole household get saved. Coming from a man like Peter, I mean, the way he put that case, I wouldn't argue with that. I'd be like, hmm, amen, I hear you, safe. I knew what them lot were saying about you before you come here weren't really true. <laughs> I saw that thing. Did you? I don't watch this program. I don't even know what it's called. Walked into the bedroom and the TV was on and there was this thing with Paris Hilton. And she's doing some modeling thing where, I don't know, she's getting, she's trying to pick, like a lot of these programs, they've got a group and they try and whittle them down to one. For some reason, she, they want, she wants someone to be a BFF, whatever that is, right? <laughs> and what she did was, I, I literally walked into the room and I saw this. And it was, she said to this group of girls... She, she gave them some notes or something to say, you see in this group, that one was saying this about you. And that one was saying this about you. But they didn't know that um, the others were saying this about them. She just kind of said, like, I don't know if it's whispering her ear, in their ear or gave them a note. So all of them think, mm, my girl's saying this about me, for real. Boy. And two twos, it, it come to light that None of them had really said anything about any of them. She was lying. She was testing them to see how they would respond to others talking about them. And only one in the group heard it and didn't respond to it. All of the rest of the group was like, what? She what? Oh, you know what? <laughs> Can you see how this group could have been guilty of doing that to Peter? Hearing about what had happened, beginning to accuse him. Careful. James says, be quick to hear, slow to speak. <laughs> and I learned yesterday, slow to be angry. It's good advice, because so often we're quick to speak, and we're slow to hear, and we're quick to get angry. <sighs> this is amazing. We see in the midst of it all, God working divinely. I'm going to drop the fifth blow of the hammer, and it was divine action. Verse 15, Peter says, If that wasn't enough, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. This incident 
Peter is saying, it wasn't created by me. Nor these new Gentile Christians. Don't blame them. Don't have a go at them. But the, the real star of the show, the real guilty party, was the Holy Spirit. Who didn't even wait for Peter to finish his message before he jumped on and into these Gentile believers, these new Gentile Christians. Peter adds, verse 16, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, check it, oh my gosh, the apostles' doctrine undergirded by the words of Jesus. I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This phenomenon would prove to be that which would confirm and complete Peter's defense. It's like the last nail in the coffin. It's like the argument done. Verse 17 and 18 provide Peter's closing statements. If then... God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? They were nailed. Verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent. Probably half of them was repenting. Good response. And they glorified God saying, then... You know what that means? James, Bartholomew. You know what that means? That means to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And brothers and sisters, the reality of that truth is being outworked in our lives today because we are a room full of dogs. We are a room full of Gentiles. If you pardon the expression. Can you see how this group of believers had received a revelation of the big picture? And it it didn't lead, as it could have, to the church splitting The reason churches split very often is because of false teaching. Did you, the Seventh-day Adventist church teach that if you are not a part of their church, you're lost. I would call that a split. And it's because of false teaching. If we're willing to submit to the teaching of the apostles, the apostles' doctrine. We can safeguard against that happening. If we are willing to listen to the leaders. If we're, li- if we're willing to listen to the leaders as they echo the words of God. If we follow leaders as they follow Christ. I suspect, as we finish, I suspect that this meant a great deal to Luke. Because he dedicates nearly 70 verses to this, and actually more, we'll see when we get to Acts chapter 15. 
And I suppose he would, given that he is the only Gentile writer of any book in the Bible. The only one. And he's a Gentile. It's beautiful. Yeah, this is not the main reason. The real grounds for this extensive detail and repetition is down to the executive author of the book, who is the Holy Spirit. Can you see how this book highlights the invitation of non-Jews into the new covenant? I mean, the Holy Spirit opens the doors. I mean, Peter got the key right, but the Holy Spirit is the... Particularly highlighting, check it, the use of a man, and I only had a eureka moment a couple of weeks ago after I did the first session. Next time I teach it, I'll be able to do it. Particularly highlight, I spoke to Harry on Tuesday night at a prayer meeting about it, so she's, got the, she's already got the Jedi. <laughs> Particularly highlighting the use of a man. Do you remember when we done chapter Nine, nine, at the end of chapter 9, verse 31 to the end, we, we noticed all of those Greek words. Aeneas, Tabitha, but her name's Dorcas, Greek. The, went to stay with Simon the Tanner, unusual. Remember, all the Greek clues in the text, because God was opening, the Holy Spirit was opening the door to the Gentiles. Particularly, I would suggest, we see highlighted here, and the focus is going to come off of him in a minute. We see highlighted the use of a man who had his name changed from Hebrew to Greek. He had a Hebrew name and the Lord changed it to a Greek one. Jesus said, Simon, you shall be called Peter. And it is you who will... It's you I'm going to give the keys to open the door to the Gentiles. Amen. Shall we pray together? Father, your word, if I said your word excited me, Father, it would be an understatement. Lord, as I stand here, And I hope, as my brothers and sisters sit, as we gather here, just in this moment, Father, I can't describe it, but I I don't even want to use the word I sense, but I appreciate just the nourishment that comes into my soul through partaking of and feeding on your word. It's truly nourishment to my soul. My father, Debbie read it in the psalm earlier. The children of Israel, they desired what they desired. And Lord, some of their desire wasn't your desire. But they wanted it. And you said, okay, I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you that which is not going to satisfy you. But you want it? Okay, here you go. And father... Scripture says that you gave them their request, but sent leanness into their souls. 
Father, just this afternoon, I'm just reminded of the fact that if we will reject that, just like we reject false teaching, if we will appreciate what you have for us and get in the kitchen and get out the ingredients and begin to become familiar with cooking with that which you provide and beginning to feast on that, it will bring nourishment to our souls. And Father, that's what we desire. We desire that here, Lord, we desire that here, that you would provide us with that which nourishes. And we thank you because it's just a taste of the wonderful things to come beyond this life. And we get in a human body to be able to appreciate, just like Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And we lick our lips. Well, I do this afternoon. And thank you for your word because it's so good. Thank you, Father. Affect our lives for it, I pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen.